Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. For this episode of Sub Rosa, David Schaefer returns to talk about the academic field of intelligence studies and a new article of his on optical communications technology and what impact they might have on the future of Pine Gap, which is the joint Australian and American satellite facility with various military and intelligence purposes, which is often treated as a symbol of the military alliance between Australia and America. We recorded this episode earlier this year in April, and we spend the first half of it talking about intelligence studies and David's new research role in London, and the second half talking about this optical communications technology and cross-satellite links, and whether this will make Pine Gap less important in the future. At the very end, we also discuss a bunch of books and articles on these topics that listeners might be interested in. Enjoy. So, hello David. Good to have you back on the show. It is great to be back. Thank you, Andrew. You're welcome. So, uh, where, this is actually the first time we've had another guest uh, return on Sub Rosa. So thank you, but no, it's a privilege. It's, um, I think I'm probably, and I, I don't say this as a disrespect to your fan base, but I'm probably the biggest fan of this podcast. So it feels kind of natural, but no, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be back. We're very happy to have you. Thank you. All right. So, when we last spoke to you, you were working at the University of Melbourne mm-hmm. for Asia Link and Ormond College. Yes. And that was about six months ago, I think, we recorded that episode. Mm. Um, but you've left. Now you're in London. What are you doing there? So, I'm a PhD student at uh, King's College in London in the Department of War Studies. So, I think when we last spoke, I actually mentioned that I had studied there previously. I did my master's. Oh, and- yeah in war studies, which is the kind of interdisciplinary conflict and security program that they have there. Um, so I, I've gone back as a, as a PhD student and I'm studying under a Professor Michael Goodman in the department mm-hmm. who is an intelligence historian. He's actually the official historian of the Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, which we can probably go into a bit later, but it's the apex body of strategic assessment in the British intelligence community. And what I'm doing is kind of studying the colonial variations of that body, um, particularly in Australia, Canada and New Zealand over the course of the Cold War. Um, So that's part of the hat I've got on in London. And I'm also working as an assistant um, to Michael Herman, who who maybe some of your listeners might have heard of. Now, Michael Herman wrote the book Intelligence, Power and Peace and War, Yes, which I think I last looked at over 10 years ago, <laughs> but it's very much regarded as the key book on yeah, intelligence it's, studies. It's oh, authoritative. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. I mean, it's the, I think there was, an, there was an interview with Michael Herman recently conducted by the journal Intelligence and National Security, which is the premier journal in the field, and they described it as the reference point for all other general treatments of intelligence as an element of statecraft and of governance. Um, and it is, it's brilliant. And look, he's an amazing man. Um, and he, he had a long and storied career in British intelligence. He retired from GCHQ, which is the Signals Intelligence Agency in the UK. Um, he then retired and moved to Oxford, where he was a research fellow for, for many years. Um, Intelligence Power, it was published in 96. Mm-hmm. Um, he then went on to found the, in, the Oxford Intelligence Group. And um, he's trying to work on another book, and I'm, I'm giving him some help. 
Okay. Yeah, so, so that's what I'm doing in London. So you're Michael Herman's research assistant? Yes. And you are doing a PhD at King's College London, Department of War Studies? That's right. And just quickly, the research assistant work... So is Herman within the War Studies Department now, or is he still at Oxford? No, he's not. He's actually re- retired from Oxford. So this is this is actually brokered through my supervisor. So Herman is is formally retired. Um, I'm doing this in a kind of a private capacity for him. Yeah. Cool. All right. So your field is intelligence studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly is that? So we've spoken on the podcast before about intelligence, intelligence agencies. Yeah. How does it work in an academic field? It's a good question because. We actually don't have a consensus definition on what intelligence is. So as an academic field, that's, that's not a good thing. Um, I suppose it's, it's a subset of international relations, more, more broadly, um, which looks at the, the activity and the role of espionage and intelligence collection, intelligence analysis and intelligence. It looks particularly at the agencies and the officials who are involved in the collection of secret information and it's used by government. Um, and it's an interesting one because it's, it's interdisciplinary, like war studies more generally. Um, it's mostly now, I think it's fair to say, historical um, and, and, and concerned with looking at key moments in the past where intelligence played an important role. Um, but there's also a strong strand of political science and public policy that runs through it that looks at things like organisational reform, um, analytical thinking, um, intelligence influence on policy, I'm guessing? Yeah, although that's obviously much harder to substantiate and to look yeah. at as a scholar. Um, so it's a little bit looser with some of the methodology that you'd expect from social science. Um, there's a lot more inference, um, a lot more speculation, um, in part because the data isn't necessarily available. So it's an interesting, kind of exciting, innovative field of international relations that's still trying to develop the rigorous formal theorising that you see from things like strategic studies or from military change or, or, or countering violent extremism. Uh, I'd actually have to go ahead there and say many people would make, and uh, quite compellingly, some of the exact same critiques of strategic studies. One of my main fields is terrorism studies, which, similarly, uh, there's no agreed definition of terrorism. So, no, I think I can um, relate quite a lot there. Right. There's similar debates about um, improving rigor in the field. Yeah, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, well, I suppose, um, yeah, it's, it's a new thing for me being, being a PhD student and getting acquainted with a lot of the social science that surrounds a dissertation as a project. So, yeah, I'm still figuring out exactly how unique or similar the experience of being an intelligence academic is with other fields. Um, but certainly it, it's a field that's very conscious of those limitations, I think, a lot of these definition, definitional issues are being played around with in, in current publications and journals, which might be something quite distinct about it. Um, the other thing is we're very interested in the machinery of government, but we deal with parts of government that are deliberately secretive and that don't like to give up information, which is probably something very, very unique about intelligence. So that does lead directly to my next question, which is given the inherent secrecy involved, how do people study intelligence? And I'm guessing that's a big reason why you say it has a historical focus a lot of the time. Yeah, that's right. So we just don't have, we often don't have the data. That's the, the first big challenge. Um, in fact, probably the most famous intelligence studies expert alive today, not Herman, um, is, is Christopher Andrew, who's now an emeritus professor in Cambridge. Um, he was interviewed by the same journal that I mentioned before, Intelligence and National Security. And in the interview, he talks about first coming across intelligence as something to focus on. And 
It's this great story. He, he went over to the archives in France and he was looking at French diplomacy in the 1890s, particularly focusing on the French foreign minister. And at the time, he was reading the, the memo trail that was coming out of the foreign minister's office and he had access to German historical material from their foreign ministry that was released about 50 years later. And what he realised was that the French foreign minister must, must have had access to some of the same material. In other words, the French were spying on the Germans and could see in real time what it took historians of Germany 50 years later to figure out. And then he reflects on how difficult it is to convince other historians that this kind of speculation and inference is actually quite rigorous and has weight and that we should pay attention to it. So intelligence studies has suffered from this in a way because a lot of other historians say, well, look, if you don't have the rigorous data set, then not only can't you make the kind of deep, um, detailed observations that we'd like from proper history, but also you can't make the kind of wide-ranging comparative studies that you'd see in political science. So data availability is a big problem. The other thing is that, and this has, has played out to some extent, at the expense of intelligence studies, there's a focus on those few areas where there is a lot of data. And that's usually things like public investigations and commissions into intelligence failures or overreach by intelligence agencies and attempts to bring some accountability and transparency to the intelligence world. So what you get is a, is a school of thought that is heavily preoccupied with past failures and past instances of abuse. Um, intelligence studies really comes about after the Vietnam War um, Watergate era, where there are congressional committees that look into this stuff. And, you know, that may have, in the first decade or so, given off the wrong impression about what intelligence is. People tend to think that intelligence is meant to be about predicting the future, or it's about avoiding um, disaster. It's about arming policymakers with, with a perfect knowledge of what's happening. And that's not really it. It's chipping away at uncertainty. It's, it's using the information that we can get to tackle ignorance. Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's one of the challenges in that field that we have focused a lot on certain areas where there's a lot of data that has unbalanced our appreciation of what intelligence does. Is it the case, though, that the places where lots of data does eventually become available on intelligence services are cases of intelligence failure or scandal? Um, aren't there just also archives that open up, you know, often every 30 years or sometimes 50 years in different democracies? Also cases where a regime has collapsed, like apartheid South Africa, or the Soviet Union, and then lots of those archives come available. Um, does that not also make up a big part of intelligence research? It, it does, yeah, and it's very helpful, and thank you for pointing it out. I suppose this is where my dissertation comes into play, because that's a distinct challenge for Australia. There's a lot of international relationships, particularly clustered around the US alliance network, you know, people call it the Five Eyes. That's Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the UK, and the US. Um, the challenge for a smaller country like Australia when it comes to intelligence is that a lot of the content and the material that they were working with were recycled reports that came from the US or the UK, you know, their larger partners. And so when it comes to the archival declassification policy, it's much more complicated because what the Australians have to do is send off a request to Washington DC or to London and to say, look, your report is included in this tranche of documents that we'd like to declassify 30 years later. Can we do it? And obviously there's no sense of urgency in Washington or London to help you know, the National Australian Archives get out this information as quickly as possible. So it tends to sit there. 
So, yes, um, you know, there are generally a lot of uh, a slow-moving declassification process that reveals some data, um, but it is very slow, and so it's hard to kind of find... um, you know, a vibrant field where people are discovering new things all the time, but also those those liaison relationships complicate the de- the declassification. And then, obviously, there are some things in Australia's history that we still that the government still doesn't want us to know. Um, you know, it could be something sensitive about a particular human source that's still alive. Um, it might be that there's a particular kind of technology that we've continued to use to infiltrate an adversary or a foreign country's information systems. And for reasons of national security, the government doesn't want that declassified in the archives. So the archives are very useful, and most of the work in this field is, is, is clustered around archival releases. And there's been a huge volume of material, particularly in the UK, that's come out over the last 20 to 30 years. But it's probably not at the standard that we'd like. Um, before I forget, I should mention that the two other things that we use in this field to kind of get around that policy. The first is, I mentioned earlier, um, that there were congressional investigations into the US intelligence in the late 1970s. Well, cross-referencing is very helpful. Um, and that's the wonderful thing about a system of checks and balances, the Madisonian constitutional system in the US. When the branches of government work together, often you get a lot of light that's emitted. So congressional investigations give us some fascinating insights into things often touching on Australia's own intelligence policy that we wouldn't necessarily have if we were just focusing on Canberra. And some of the really pioneering intelligence history from the from the 1980s, looking at intelligence during the world during World War II and the early Cold War, used that. It was kind of a, almost intel, like intelligence work itself. It was building together an understanding of what might be happening from fragmentary accounts that were dispersed across the world. Um, and the other thing that we're getting better at doing is oral testimony. So, so now... There are a lot of retired intelligence agents. They may not necessarily be able to talk about certain specifics, but they can give us general reflections. And when you stack that up against other sources of information, it can help refine our understanding of some past historical episodes. Okay. So there's quite a few things going on there. Um, So firstly, one of those points was that essentially you're saying by going to American archives, for example, or maybe British and such as well, Mm -hmm you can sometimes find out things that Australian intelligence agencies were doing in a period Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't be able to find out through any other source. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, so by way of illustration, um, there's a particular dossier that's in the National Archives in Kew that I was looking at only a few weeks ago. In the UK? Yeah, that's right. So Kew's where the the public records office is, the the National Archives of the UK, um, that that was classified UK eyes only. So it was the British liaison officer sent out by London to Australia in the 1960s, and he was writing back to his British masters, reporting gossip, reporting observations about the way that Australian intelligence was functioning. And there are some things that Australian intelligence was doing in the 1960s that clearly the Australian government has decided for reasons of national security, they still want to remain classified. But the so Brit- necessarily national security, though, or is that kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt too much? Look, could it, there be political embarrassment or other reasons going on? For, for sure, it could be. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. I'm using national security in a very liberal sense. Um, or, well, not liberal. I'm using it in a very <laughs> vague... Broad-based Yeah, sense. woolly sense. That's right. So, yeah, look, for whatever reason, the archives have activated a particular 
section of the legislation which allows them to say, we're not going to declassify, we don't have to if we've decided. And, and national security can include political considerations. And certainly there are British archives that I'd like to get that reflect on the trust and reliability of Australia as an intelligence partner mm. in the late 70s and early 80s that I can't access. And I suspect that's more for reasons of diplomatic embarrassment. Um, because obviously you can have selective declassification and yet sometimes whole records are denied. Yeah. Um, and, you know, any historian who deals with the archives would be familiar with this kind of challenge. Um, but back to the point about the British community, what, what, what you find is that, you know, there are reflections and secondary observations that are reported by the British liaison officer that I can then access going to the London archives. And so I can use that to give me another insight into the limited amount of information that is available on the Australian experience of intelligence in the 1960s. Yeah, so that's really interesting, and it's also um, consistent with what a number of Australian journalists used to do back when we had thousands of troops deployed in Orzgan province in Afghanistan. And a number of these journalists found that by following uh, simply Pentagon press releases, they could actually find out about a number of engagements Australians were involved in mm. um, that the Australian government itself wasn't keen to talk about. Yeah. So that's a bit of a common theme, I think, in... Um, just Australia's uh, high, le- high levels of secrecy than some of its other partners. Yeah. Um, and that sometimes to find out what's going on, you have to go on a roundabout way. Mm. So as I mentioned at the beginning, you've moved to London to do this PhD. Uh, is there not much of an intelligence studies kind of research field inside Australia itself? Yeah, so look, th- there are people obviously who study this and um, some of them are former practitioners. Um I suppose the key word would be that there's not much of an intelligence research community. Um, I think that's fair to say that there are obviously, um, you know, there's a professional association for former Australian intelligence officers, and I think they're a nationwide network. They have different state-based chapters, and they have a journal, and they publish pretty regularly. Um, There are also some really standout contributors in Australia who do great work on intelligence. Um, People like Patrick Walsh are terrific. Um, The late Des Ball, obviously, is great. Yeah, Andrew O'Neill's Griffiths University. Yeah, Andrew O'Neill um, Griffiths University. Walsh, Charles Sturt. Charles Sturt, that's right. Yeah. Um, and there are obviously some historians who look at this as well. David McKnight is somebody who's looked into the yeah. history of ASIO in the beginning. The official histories of ASIO have come out. That's um, right, yeah. Authored by... Uh, David Horner, John Blacksland and Rhys Crawley at ANU. So these are all great scholars who do, you know, terrific work trying to piece together a history of intelligence in Australia. The problem for me was that they're operating in a local context that's a little bit divorced from the broader global field of intelligence studies that's congealing together. Um, that's not to, you know, diss their work. They, they do great stuff, but there are debates going on in the UK and the US where there's a, a pretty close network of experts who do this and they do it really well. Um, so that was one inducement. Uh, you know, I thought that we could do more to bridge the connections with the local Australian scene and with what's going on, particularly in the Atlantic countries. Um, But also the agency that I'm looking at in particular is the Commonwealth or the colonial subset of the Joint Intelligence Committee. So my supervisor is the official historian of that committee. Um, So that was very helpful. Um, And also London, you know, as, as we've discussed, being in London gives me access to data that isn't necessarily available in Australia. And it's the best place to, to do a comparative study between different communities. Um, so look, broadly, yeah, we're, we're, we're making progress here. But I think 
given how central the intelligence ties Australia maintains are to our broader alliance diplomacy and political relationships with these kinds of countries, um, you know, I think we could probably do more as a country to foster this area of research. Um, and hopefully when I'm done in, in the UK, I'll be back and I'll be contributing to that. Cool. Okay. So uh, we're going to talk about Australian intelligence um, and particularly about an article that you recently wrote. Last time we spoke, you told us about how developments in space technology uh, affect Australian intelligence, particularly the intelligence relationship with America, um, and particularly how it impacts the broader US-Australian military alliance. Continuing with this theme, you recently wrote an article on the impact of, I think came out yesterday? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it came out in the Australian Journal of International Affairs mm-hmm. yesterday, um, on the impact of optical communication systems and what difference these are making. So firstly, what are these systems and what is their use in the military and intelligence domains? Sure. So the important thing to understand with optical communications is we're not there yet. Um, these are experimental. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of grounded in the study that I did of the existing infrastructure we have for, for intelligence in outer space. Um, in the last podcast, I talked about the role of facilities like Pine Gap in the desert, which effectively help to control and coordinate the activity of satellites positioned anywhere from the Indian Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, um, staring at the kind of, you know, the Eurasian landmass, as it were. Um, In that instance, what you have is intelligence assets positioned on these satellites that have to communicate with the ground. Now, ideally for the US intelligence community, what would happen is that intelligence is conveyed directly back to continental United States. In practice, that's not how it a lot of satellites function. Um, um, For most of the intelligence assets that are positioned on on satellites in the sky, they need to communicate with the ground through radio frequency. Mm. So if you can imagine a satellite that's trying to communicate down on the ground, it doesn't have a narrow radio beam that connects with a specific location. Instead, it sends out a signal that spreads over a very large distance on the ground, kind of like a cone. Um, so what that means is that if there's anyone in a ground location near the receiving station, they can also receive the same signal, which is part of the reason why Australia had such a prominent role in US space systems to begin with, because a place like Pine Gap is in a very remote location where it's very difficult for foreign intelligence rivals of the United States to send any ships or have any kind of hardware that can intercept those satellite signals on the ground. Big open desert. Big open desert, that's right. With farming properties that have committed to not allow anyone to, you know, trespass, and with a small local airport and train service that can be very easily monitored to make sure that there are no unsavory characters knocking around. Mm -hmm. By contrast, if you've got US ground control stations in a place like Guam or in Japan or in the Philippines, it's not particularly difficult for an intelligence ship to travel nearby in the hope of intercepting a signal from the, from from a satellite. Um, okay, so that's... I'm just going to interrupt you a bit there. Sure. That's a really good illustration of the importance of Pine Gap yes. and the, picking up these radio frequencies from satellites and such. Just going to throw another question in there. When did satellites start communicating that way? Because... From the movie Ice Station Zebra, which I then looked up some stuff on Wikipedia beforehand, satellites used to go up, take a bunch of photos, and then literally have to drop a canister of film out into a little thing that would be in the atmosphere, and then have to get picked up um, 
essentially by an aircraft or something, mm-hmm. uh, come out with a parachute. Yeah. When, uh, when did that change? Well, it didn't. Um, what happened, satellites always communicated with the ground using radio frequency. That's how they uh-huh. were controlled. What changed is that the computer systems on board the satellites that would take that photo imagery and then convert it into data, when they reached a point of sophistication where they could be placed aboard a satellite and where that imagery could be turned into electronic data that then could be transmitted via radio waves, that's when those old satellites went out of date, right? Um, and that's a problem for satellites. They're, they're very difficult to get up into orbit and to maintain. There's a limited amount of space. It's very expensive to build them. And so the capacity for satellites to have radio antennas that could communicate with other satellites, what we call satellite crosslinks, so not going via ground but from one satellite to another, um, it was very difficult. That they were that There wasn't much space. It was very hard to build them long enough so that they could direct a beam that was, that was targeted at another satellite. Um, and so for that reason, for, for a very long period, Pine Gap was the essential and necessary ground tether for US military satellites operating above Eurasia to communicate back to the continental United States. Yeah. Um, the article that I wrote looks at the development of a new type of satellite communication system called optical communications, which is in effect lasers. Um, when it comes to optical communications, all you're using is the data capacity of photons of light. And this is something that actually, I believe, and, and I'm not an expert in this particular field of science, but Alexander Graham Bell, when he first investigated the use of the telephone, also investigated the idea of using light to transmit information. And that's what a laser does. Now, the thing about optical communications or laser systems is that for a long time, they were very difficult to do over long distances. That's now shifted over the last 15 years. And so what you have are laser systems that can now provide a pinpoint connection between satellites over very large distances, and they can actually transmit more data with greater reliability than radio. And so what I looked at was the potential for these American military and spy satellites to adopt this technology as a way of cross-linking with one another so that they didn't necessarily have to transit via Pine Gap Station. Yeah, interesting. Um, so my next question was, how might the impact the US-Australia alliance? And I think a key contention of yours there is they might make Pine Gap, if these developments go ahead, as people are currently projecting they will, they might make Pine Gap a lot less important. That's right. So there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, the first is that you know radio crosslinks, and, and indeed laser crosslinks, have been experimented with for the last 20 years. So there's been a limited capacity to transmit data from above Eurasia to the continental US without having to rely on Pine Gap. And there are a few people, John Blackson's one at ANU, who've spoken about this. They've said, you know, there is a redundant capacity for satellite crosslinks that does mean some of Pine Gap's more critical features from the 1970s aren't as relevant. Um, but the issue is there's also been an enormous growth in the volume and appetite for electronic data that our militaries and that our intelligence agencies have been using over the last 15 to 20 years. So while that capacity has been building up, some experts, and here I use Richard Tanter from the University of Melbourne, some experts believe that it's still too difficult to cross-link all of the data that some of the more powerful spy satellites are now collecting. 
which means that Pine Gap is still in some way a necessary ground tether for some of the electronic data that our signals intelligence satellites are gathering. And the way that our military forces and doctrines are evolving means that that type of information is particularly important for targeting and for battlefield assessment. So in a war, um, Pine Gap would still have an important role, um, which goes to the question of American deterrence and the capacity to fight a major war in Asia. Um, having said that, if we see a shift to satellite crosslinks using optical communications or lasers, then that information might be able to transit Pine Gap without going down to Australia. Now that might not have an immediate effect or even a near-term effect um, for a few reasons. The first is because even though the technology is available for the Americans to incorporate onto satellites, they're not necessarily going to do it. Um, the second is because there's a huge investment of human resources into Pine Gap involving both Australian and American analysts. So any decision to circumvent Pine Gap would have those kinds of knock-on effects that bureaucratically are quite complicated. So there's probably a resistance within the bureaucracy to, to taking this kind of step. At the third most important point about that is that Australia hasn't really played fast and loose with Pine Gap as a bargaining chip. So yes, it's incredibly important to the American military and to the American intelligence community. For that reason, a smart alliance policy would be careful with using it as leverage. And I don't think, and look, I don't know all the details about the history of the political negotiations around Pine Cap, but I suspect that Australia is very uncomfortable thinking of Pine Gap as a bargaining chip. Um, what laser crosslinks would do, however, is remove any possibility of us using Pine Gap as a bargaining chip in the future. And when we think of a future involving Donald Trump as president, who's raised questions about the commitment of the US to um, its Asian allies, and increasingly people begin to speculate about the long-term risk of US disengagement from Asia, what we're effectively losing is the one vital function that we always played in US strategic policy. Interesting. Um, on the point of using as a bargaining chip, if I recall correctly, I'm not sure I'm representing him accurately here, I think Kim Beasley's argued that the Labour government in the early 1980s did in fact sort of use Trump Pine Gap as a bargaining chip vis-a-vis um, -vis the Reagan administration, um, essentially to help sort of uh, Australia push back against the idea of doing MX missile tests here mm -hmm. to help make Australia maintain strong uh, you know, intelligence military links with New Zealand at the time when the Reagan administration was very annoyed at New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy mm -hmm. and a number of other areas as well. But I might be overstating the case to say bargaining chip. I think he certainly used the argument that the Labour Party's increased knowledge of what Pine Gap actually did helped improve their position in relation to America. Yeah, that's right. I think the, the key thing about the collaboration over intelligence via outer space, which isn't just Pine Gap, but Pine Gap's the famous base associated yeah. with this, is that it probably gives Australian officials and policymakers more assurance and more confidence when they do sit down with American officials to thrash out other issues because they know that we are 
a vital ally and they know that we bring some weighty contributions to the table. So it might not be, it may never have been trying to alter the direction of US strategic policy, but perhaps on certain technical areas or some experimental um, parts of the alliance, we felt a bit more comfortable pushing back. But look, that's a kind of a diplomatic historical angle that I haven't really investigated in great detail. So essentially, you're arguing that satellite cross-linked optical communications technology, which appears to currently be where the technology is heading, uh, potentially reduce the value of Pine Gap to America and potentially other bases as well. And what does that then imply for Australia? And particularly, what does it imply, I guess, for both critics and supporters of the US alliance? Well, I think we have to be very careful when we think about the long-term development of our national intelligence resources. Um, so, you know, I was I approached this article with both the supporters and the critics of the US alliance in mind because I think, you know, this is clearly an important national intelligence asset, or it has been in the past. We've invested a lot of human and financial resources into this infrastructure. And if there is the risk... And, you know, admittedly, it requires several different factors to come into play. But if there is the risk that if the political need arose, American intelligence could circumvent Pine Gap, um, then we either need to be thinking about developing our own resources so that we're not dependent on their space assets, or we need to be thinking about ways to essentially entrap American strategic commitment to, to our national security. Um, so in the article at the end, you know, what I say is for the critics of the US alliance who have often sought this kind of outcome, who have, have wanted the Americans to withdraw from Pine Gap, you know, some people describe it as the poisoned heart of Australia. What they need to do is think very carefully about a future Australian strategic policy that isn't being supplied by a kind of reliable and um, effective feed of intelligence across Asia. So if it is the case that US foreign policy risks war and is dangerous, then an independent Australia has to think carefully about matters of war and peace in Asia. Um, but if the Americans can repurpose their satellites and can redirect their classified data feeds around Australia, what do we have as a substitute if the political relationship deteriorated to the point where we couldn't have access to those systems? Now, that would probably cost a lot of money. For Australia to develop its own space technology. That's right. Money. That's right, yeah. Um, you know, probably not as much as it would have in the 1960s because now there are more commercial means and scientific means of getting satellites up and down of space. Um, but they're smaller, you know, they're less reliable. They can't host the kind of payloads that you'd want for an intelligence agency like signals collection. Um, it also means that we'd have to invest a lot more in cybersecurity because this is a growing and important area. This is a growing and important area of intelligence and domestic security. And if we were trying to build these intelligence assets, which would be uniquely our own and indigenous to us, then the first risk is that some kind of rival or, or some adversary or even just a, a friendly but competitive intelligence actor would try to get inside our systems, would try to figure out what we're doing and could have could develop the means to disrupt what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, for the supporters of the American alliance, if Pine Gap loses its its necessity in American space systems, then we need to be thinking about other ways to bind them to Australian national security. Now, you know, we don't have to if the political relationship relate remains strong. So it's not an urgent concern, but 
I think I detect among Australian strategic experts who focus very closely on US foreign policy in Asia, a growing concern about the unreliability and the volatility of the direction of US regional diplomacy. So if we are Trump. under Trump, but um, you know, I think Hugh White says that some of the trends that give rise to these concerns predate Trump and will probably last beyond him. Um, and Hugh White's one who has openly talked about an Asia without the US. He's been consistent on this for a long time, he, since um, mid-2000s at least. He has been very consistent, yeah. If we take this school of thinking seriously, then we have to ask ourselves, so what tools would we have, what diplomatic tools or, or bargaining chips would we have to try and keep the Americans engaged in Asia? Now, obviously, the critics of the alliance would say, well, we don't want them in Asia. We want them out. They're not helping. Um, but the supporters of the US alliance presumably think that a strong American presence in Asia has a stabilising role, or at least helps benefit Australia's national interests. And so there are different areas of space policy, particularly in ballistic missile defence, where I think what Australia could do is invest in space assets and satellites, and also infrastructure on the ground, that could again play a critical role in American national security. Even Donald Trump is concerned about ballistic missiles coming from North Asia. Even the most unilateral um, isolationist American administration wants to build the kind of technology that can protect themselves from missile attacks. And if Australia has another role in that system, and indeed a critical one, then once again we'd be in the safer alliance territory of being a valued and significant and irremovable ally. A valuable piece of real estate, as um, Desmond Ball referred to. That's right. What we offered. Yeah, the most the most famous scholar in this field who did a lot to lay the basis for our understanding of this. A, a, a suitable piece of real suitable. estate, I think, was his view. Ah. And in that instance, I think what he was getting at is that um, <laughs> the decision was one that was perhaps taken over our heads, yeah. or at least one that reflected the the, the outlook of American foreign policy. Yeah. Um, perhaps we can become a more valuable piece of real estate as opposed to a suitable one. Nice. Uh, all right, so, we've got a couple more questions, but I'm concerned I'm keeping you here too long. What's the time? 4.30. Uh, in the I next... Remember... Maybe if I head off in the next 10, 15 minutes, that should be okay. Uh, I can I'm... be a little bit after five, it's okay, but I'll turn my phone back on just in case. Uh, I'm just going to ask the last question. You're right. All right, well, thanks so much for your time, David. Uh, before you go, do you have any advice for any of our listeners who might be interested in intelligence studies? Yeah, get involved. Um, <laughs> I suppose you're looking for more practical advice than send an email to David. Um, yes, I think uh, the first thing is probably to familiarise yourself with some of the, the the authoritative texts in the field. You know, we mentioned Michael Herman and Christopher Andrew before. Uh, Desmond Ball's work is terrific and really valuable. There's an emerging field of intelligence studies internationally that I think is you know, accessible to Australian students in a way that it wasn't perhaps 20 or 30 years ago. So, you know, it's there and it's waiting to be looked at. Are you mentioning some of the key journals earlier? Yeah, so we've got Intelligence and National Security, probably the key one. Then there's also the International Journal on Intelligence and Counterintelligence. Yeah. And there's also a good journal professional one done by the CIA called Studies in Intelligence. And that one's open access, isn't it? It is, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, often involving declassified articles that were written as internal memoranda for the CIA. Really fascinating, lots of good stuff. So there's a lot out there to look at. Um, beyond that, I think, you know, one of the things that I've tried to do is to keep track of 
a lot of the intelligence activity that Australia is involved in that is being discussed outside of Australia. So, you know, there's a really specialised and very illuminating US defence and national security press and media. Um, congressional testimony in the US is, is a trove of information, of value. Um, so, you know, getting engaged in that and keeping an eye on the kind of trends that are shaping Australia's intelligence future is very helpful. Um, and I'd also suggest bringing an intelligence perspective to previous or to other areas of Australian foreign defence and security policy. So, you know, I'm amazed as an intelligence researcher how often issues come up in expert debate where we talk about perhaps Australia's role in the South China Sea, Australia's role in the Korean Peninsula, Australia's role with Jamar Islamia in Southeast Asia, um, Australia's historical experience of the Quad or of, you know, our intervention into East Timor or Timor-Leste. But intelligence as an element of that activity is, is passed over or ignored. Um, there's a lot more we could do to integrate that field into the broader discussion. So I'd really encourage that. And I'd love to hear from some of your listeners who are involved in that. Oh, that's excellent. I also think we should give a shout out to Richard Tanter's website uh, because of all the resources on there, including a transcript that we were talking about a few days ago. Yes. Where Desmond Ball and Paul Dibb, it's a transcript from 1999, are uh, talking to a parliamentary committee and the parliamentarians are getting very, very furious over how <laughs> they can't be told anything about Pine Gap or um, visitors, mm. whereas various American members of Congress are allowed to visit us. That's right. Um, and that all they can find out about Pine Gap is from a number of mainly ANU academics. Yeah. Um, and so that particular transcript, yeah, I couldn't find it anywhere on the parliamentary website, even though I went back to the committee and such. But Richard Tanter had got a copy um, from somewhere public and put a digitised version up on his website. And it has lots of resources like that, which is a tremendously valuable resource. Yeah. I can't remember the address at all. <laughs> uh, I think if you go to the Nautilus Institute, yeah. um, which is not just Richard, but, but also a broader network of regional experts, um, you can find there's a there's a particular page on the joint facilities that, that Richard maintains. Yeah, uh, that, that summarizes it nicely. I think he's a he, he's a very interesting scholar who's been dogged in his pursuit of open source information on this, and he's put together a great database of material. Whatever your views are on the facilities, and I mentioned before that there are some critics of the US Alliance who refer to Pine Gap as the poisoned heart of Australia. He's one of them, and I should say, you know, for your listeners, I, I don't agree with his with his. Um, assessment of what Pine Gap is. I mean, part of my article is talking about ways to strengthen <laughs> the binds that exist in these intelligence systems. But, um, you know, he's, he's done incredibly valuable work and yeah, that, that deserves to be recognised. Indeed. All right, well, excellent. Again, thanks so much for joining us again, David. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, Kat, who, is, who has walked away from the podcast recording room but is around the corner um, and who I look forward to hearing on this podcast again at some point in the near future. Well, not only that, um, she actually has an office, a book on Pine Gap, we didn't mention while talking about all our resources there. Ah. So if you hold on one second, I'm yes. just going to get that and mention right. The Des Ball. Oh, she's getting it. No, not Des Ball. So I have two Des Ball books on Pine Gap in yeah. the office there, one called Pine Gap, one called Stories of Real Estate. Who, who, who else were on Pine Gap? Someone who worked there. Oh, yeah, that's a, this is the computer. Oh, no, this is the American from a few years ago, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. He's yeah. American. Oh, but he's second. living in Australia now. I'm not quite sure. Just one second. Please inform our readers that we have a trouble finding. 
So we're currently looking for a particular book that was a memoir written by, uh, I, be- I believe, an American serviceman at Pine Gap that that Cat has here in her in her room. Andrew, take it away. Okay, the book's called Inside Pine Gap: The Spy Who Came In from the Desert by an American person called David Rosenberg, who worked at Pine Gap for some time. Um, I haven't read the book, nor has David, but Katrina, my lovely fiance, has. What? Tell us. Is a good book. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> Would you there recommend you the Yeah. Cool. Go out and read it. That's a stunning recommendation. All right. <laughs> okay, that should be enough resources for any interested leader. If that should be enough resources for any interested listeners. Um, enjoy. Thanks.